0: Good morning. So glad to be with you today and to spend some time with you and this week and um, I've been looking forward to this time and I'll, again I'll probably have, have some more things to say about my being here uh, a little bit later in the morning but we do have a lot that we want to cover this morning. I tell you just being able to meet in a building like this and to be able to worship God and the, the joy of being able to, to approach the Bible from the sense of of wanting to just simply do what it says, Uh, to uh, be able to follow the the guidance of the apostles of old and to do the things that uh, Christians in the first century did, uh, is truly a unique thing in America and around the world. Not everybody does this. In fact, most people who are of the Judeo-Christian emphasis... Do not worship this way. So this morning, as you approach the worship hour, I want you to anticipate the wonderful joy of being able to to participate in all the things that, that God has set forth in His Word. But I also want you to realize what a unique blessing you have today. Because you can be a part of the church that you read about in the New Testament that you can be forgiven the way they were forgiven of their sins and obedience to the gospel repentance of sin uh, from, from sinful ways, confessing Christ, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and to be able to worship the way they worshiped in the, in the New Testament, to, to be able to live the Christian life in the way that they were instructed to live the Christian life. Truly a wonderful thing. And so, uh, as has been said many, many times in, in our past, we're literally standing on the shoulders of giants. Great works have been done in history. And I think one of the best things that we can do is to remember our past and to hold on to the, the knowledge of the great sacrifices that were made. We know of the great sacrifice of our Lord. It was huge. It was so mammoth in comparison to all other sacrifices. But yet, what that sacrifice did is it had a kind of a flow-on effect in the lives of individuals. So, don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I just want to say, as we go into this, as we're talking about these things, they may be just old facts to you, maybe things you've heard of time and time again, but these things are our past. And because of that, hold on to them and know about them. You've got some pictures here of some uh, great men of God that... uh, that sacrificed relationship, sacrificed income, sacrificed great amounts of uh, relationships in their lives because they simply wanted to follow the Word of God. And so they don't need to be forgotten. They weren't perfect men. They didn't do everything right. In fact, you can go back and you can study their lives and you can say, well, I don't agree with them here or I don't agree with them there. But what they did in the birth of this nation, the early years of this nation, is they planted an idea, a seed thought in the mindset of the people who were living here, the people they had the opportunity to influence. And that was that they could just simply read the Bible and they could follow the Bible and be what it says um, that they can be. So let's look at some of the things from our historical standpoint. Of course, you know that Daniel had uh, foretold in that great interpretation of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 2 that uh, concerning the you know the statue there the head of gold the chest of silver you know uh, on and forth, and he talked about he talked about the fact that each one of these various different things that uh, that the statue was made of was was uh, representative of kingdoms, and he talked about how that in the day of the fourth kingdom, that God would the God of heaven would have set up a kingdom that would never be f- destroyed. in, in verse forty four of that passage, and um, that kingdom was going to be of the nature that it would destroy all other kingdoms. Well, you just fast forward a few hundred years. ...to the life of Jesus, and you hear him as he begins his ministry talk about the kingdom of heaven being at hand, that it was going to come very, very soon. And then, after he goes through the the various points of his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, ascension into heaven, you see the apostles who gather together on that Pentecost day, and they preach that first message, the simple message of the gospel, and they reflect on the history... They talk about what Joel had promised back in Joel chapter 2 about uh, how that, uh, that whoever called on the name of the Lord would be saved when the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. And certainly, that was something that was taking place that day. And in the process of the message, he talked about the fulfillment of the prophecy of David uh, and uh, talked about how that uh, the same Jesus whom they crucified, God had made both Lord and Christ. And of course, we know that on that day, 3,000 people obeyed the gospel, and essentially the church started that day, as Jesus had promised back in Matthew chapter 16, that would take place. Kingdom rule began in the world, and it has continued on down through the ages. Of course, as we go down through time, we see kind of a, a development of change that takes place. You know, whenever you get people together, you're going to have struggle. You're going to have hardship. You're going to have disagreement. Uh, you're going to have disappointment. And um, there was a a great effort by the Holy Spirit to preserve the mind of God in the Scriptures so that people would have the opportunity to come back to a a foundational base upon which they might be able to know the direction that they needed to go and whatever problems that took place. And so when Paul writes these letters, many of these letters had to do with problems that they were having because people came together. And they had different ideas, and they had different thoughts, and so he dealt with those thoughts, and he dealt with those problems, like First and Second Corinthians. We're going to look at Second Corinthians, or look at that a little bit more in our lesson this morning. But disunity with partyism, taking brothers to law, incest, denial even of the resurrection of Christ in chapter 15 of the first book. Um, they were having some problems. Paul had to deal with that. Colossae was dealing with mysticism, Gnosticism. Book of Revelation, he got seven churches. All of them have problems or potential problems that needed to be addressed, need to be encouraged by. And so that was the reason those things were written. Paul warned in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 and following that when he departs, you know, grievous wolves are going to enter in to the flock. I mean, not sparing the flock at all. Even from among yourselves, he said, this is, has the potential of happening. So... He was trying to encourage them, stay the course. I commit you to God, the Word of His grace, able to build you up, give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And certainly, the Word of God does have a great, the great ability to keep us together. So he says, yet in all, all, yet in all the churches of Christ found unity following the apostolic order. They did what the apostles said. Acts 2 and verse 42, it was like whatever the apostles said, they continued in and did the things that they said. Well, of course, the apostles died. And with the death of the apostles, you start seeing men begin to start making some choices of their own. And, uh, making, and, and some problems arose as a result of it. And in time, you mix with that what was going on in society in that day. You mix in the idea of um, persecution that was taking place. Uh, Domitian was on the throne, and uh, he was wielding a lot of struggle and a lot of problem for the church of his day, and uh, arguably, uh, as, as I've, uh, I've noted in study through the years, he, he may have been, probably was, the ruler at the time when John was exiled to Patmos, and when she wrote the book of uh, uh, of Revelation. But he was a paranoid man. He only allowed one servant in his presence at a time, and, and um, he did a lot of persecution against Christians at the end of the first century. Uh, according to Suetonius, he was killed by his own ster- uh, servant Stephanus while he was taking a bath. Um, and so a lot of, lot of paranoia, a lot of problems, a lot of turmoil, and he turned, he caused a lot of turmoil there. And it, perhaps it had something to do with the events that uh, John said would shortly take place, and... Revelation one three and chapter twenty two and verse six and so uh, fast forwarding a little bit because we're dealing with a lot of history here um, down through time about the fourth century Galerius was uh, on that Roman throne thousands of Christians were killed under his uh, regime and uh, how did they how did they survive well certainly they had to survive on the basis of the Word of God they had to be Encouraged by the word of God. And certainly, they held strongly to their faith. Some of the things that he threw Christians to the lions. He, he served them as torches on his roads. Uh, uh, and um, they served as torches on his roads. Uh, uh, they did... Um, Diocletian's gardens were lit by Christians that would been had been dipped in oil and light set to them. Just grieve, uh, grueling kinds of things that people had gone through, uh, he didn't believe in God, but he was sorry for the martyrdom, um, for, uh, uh, the martyrdom of Christians uh, at the end of his life. And he signed a law ceasing persecution of Christians. And this was a really good time in the history of, uh, uh, of Christianity, although there was this pagan influence that was taking place there that continued to be enmeshed uh, with Christianity. Bring on Constantine, just a little bit later, who in thirty three thirteen signed a law that Christians would never be persecuted again by Roman government. Um, he converted to Christianity on his deathbed, made Christianity the state religion, which again was uh, kind of an enmeshing between pagan background and and the and the concept of uh, of Christianity that uh, were brought out in in the New Testament, and so you have this development of a hierarchy. In uh, in the church, and with that political power came the inability of faithful Christians to to stay within the uh, the auspices of the scriptures. And so sometimes you you uh, you kind of relent to the strongest power and the strongest influence in the congregation. And so in a short period of time, you have this development of of a church that looks much like the Roman government itself, where you've got uh, a process of a hierarchy taking place in religious organization. Well, over the years, it just continued to grow, and it continued to develop into just kind of something that was just way out there in uh, in uh, uh, in its organization. In um, one seventy five it was written that a bishop was different from an elder, one bishop over elders uh, was uh, was taking place at that time and so you you can see that development of hierarchy taking place in local congregations and then uh, sections of congregations in maybe either a township or in a, a county type setting and and ultimately um, bringing forth uh, this hierarchy that uh, that we 're talking about. Uh, in two hundred fifty development of one bishop over a diocese uh not not very long time there by five eighty there are attempts to add instruments and music uh, into the worship service up until five eighty never had a worship service with an instrument in it. First century church didn 't have instruments in their worship. they just sang. Uh, So, what, uh, 500 and something years go by before an instrument. Now, that's a very common thing in the Judeo-Christian experience today, but yet when you start telling them a little bit about history and how that early on the first church didn't have music at all uh, in the way of instruments, uh, other than the heart, of course, then um, that's kind of a new thing for them, a a new idea. But um, it was tried, it was rejected initially, but later on it was added. 606, you've got a universal uh, pontiff sitting in a position of authority, uh, rep- personal uh, human representative of Christ here upon this earth in Boniface III. Uh, in 660, just a few years later, uh, Pope Vitalian introduces organs in the church, but again, they're not generally used. It really doesn't become. Uh, strongly used to around a thousand, and when it was introduced for good, then uh, it was rejected uh, in a great way by by um, a greater a great part of the church. After a thousand A.D., well, of course, we get that period of time in history. You know, it was the Dark Ages uh, taking place? And the reason they're called the Dark Ages is because that the sun didn't shine during that time. You're right. I just wanted to make sure you're listening. now the reason they're called the dark age is because men weren't writing and they weren't making records people weren't being encouraged to read Uh, the church was the authority and uh, they had such a system in place that if you needed to know anything you didn't have to know it yourself you could just go ask the preacher or as they called him the priest and the priest would explain to them what uh, what they needed to know. And so it was a period called the Dark Ages because men were not striving to learn and to know. One of the best ways in the world to keep a person enslaved is to enslave his mind. Enslave his mind. Back in um, a most horrid period of our, our history in America was the period before the Civil War where the black man was enslaved and uh, one of the, the, the major laws to keep the black man enslaved was to the forbiddance of education. Why? Well, the reason why is, is if you learn, guess what happens? You get resistance. You start seeing that this is not natural. This is not right. This should not be done. And so, uh, in the end, uh, education is what helped the blacks in America and education was what the people back at that time needed desperately uh, during the Dark Ages. And ultimately, they did get it. By 1100, you have papal customs like holy water being introduced. By 1200, you have baptism by sprinkling. Somebody who's old, who's wealthy, um, uh, he um, decides he wants the Lord. And so he decides on his deathbed, I, I, uh, I need to be baptized. And uh, so what are we going to do? And so they said, well, you know, we'll... We need to work something out here. We can't get him to the water. We can't immerse him. I mean, up into that time, everyone was immersed. So what do they do? Well, they said, well, just this one time. We'll just sprinkle him. And so uh, they sprinkled some water on him. And so somebody comes along and they said, well, if it's good enough for him, what about me? Uh, Well, you you know, if you can get to the water, you ought to be baptized. Well, I can't get to the water. I I don't need to get to the water. Okay, well, we'll just sprinkle you too. And you see over a period of time. See, I don't really think... That the traditions of the Roman church took place um, just because somebody woke up one morning and just said, we're going to change the church. I think what happened was over a period of time, they thought, you know, we need to let Christianity work in the way that people have needs. And so they started appealing to the needs of people rather than... The Word of God. And you know what? When you start doing that, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to have some problems. And so, certainly they did have some problems. Uh, So, um, of course, they're praying through Mary uh, at that time. She was deified, uh, finally in 1967. But uh, they were praying through Mary uh, starting that early, 1290. They added wind organs uh, in the church. Uh, But the big problem was the papacy was the only one that had the Bible. Uh, and so they were the only ones that knew about what was, what was going on, what god 's word was, so if anybody wanted to know what God wanted them to know or to do, then they had to ask priest uh, for, uh, for help and then all of a sudden, the lights got turned on uh, we 're talking about the dark ages, the lights got turned on, and the way they got turned on was a great invention, perhaps the greatest event, invention that 's ever been made. the printing press. Now, I know the Internet is a great thing, but I'm telling you the printed page has been the thing that has changed the world. Because what it's done is, it's made it possible for you and for me to be able to pick up a book. One we can afford. One that um, we can uh, look at and read and we can absorb great thing was the first book that was printed was the Bible. And so over a period of time, people had an opportunity to get the Bible. You know, I love economics. I was talking to Brother Dearman a few minutes ago. We were talking about how that several years ago that when he uh, was preaching over at Red Bank, that they had gotten a a Mac and paid over $2,000 for it. You know, and, of course, what did you say, 126K of ram? I mean, that thing was a beast. Yeah, man, we're talking about a beast. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. how did the price of those Macs go down? Production. They produced those things, and the more they produce, of course, they don't go down, it hadn't gone down enough in my book, but <laughs> they, they went down over a period of time. Same thing has happened, happened with the Bible. When they produced many of them, and the more they did, the more people had an opportunity to get copies of it. And when they got copies of it, they opened those books and they started reading, and guess what they found? I can't find the word Pope in here at all. You've got some men who we could spend just hours and hours and hours talking about each one of. Dispersed in various different times and different places throughout Europe, all connected to the Roman Church. Men who were taught and well versed in the documents of the Scriptures. They had learned the Latin and they'd learned the Greek and they'd learned the Hebrew. And what happened as a result of, you've got men like John Wycliffe up there at Oxford, teaching at Oxford University. And uh in the what thirteen hundreds, and uh he starts saying, "Well, you know we can't find Pope in the Bible uh we can't find the papal organization in the Bible. We need to go back to the Bible. He had a group of called uh, of of students that followed him. they were called lollards they just man, they just thought Wickliffe was it, and they listened to everything that he said, and uh they went throughout europe and and taught and encouraged. Uh, people they influenced John Huss down in Prague uh, in the Czech Republic, and uh, and over over a period of time, continual growth. By the 1500s, you've got early 1500s. You have got Martin Luther. Martin Luther was an interesting, amazing guy. What he does is he goes down to down to Rome on his his uh, first journey to the to the you know to the big city. Uh, from up in poor Germany he goes down there and just the flagrant uh, sinfulness in the priesthood was just it just made him sick so he goes back home he starts writing he got a hold one of those printing presses and he started writing about all the abuses all the sinfulness that was going on down in Italy and over a period of time he had a great uh, following now these were reformers. They said, you know, we need to fix this. We need to fix the church. We need to make things right. The things that are going wrong in the, in the church. Well, some of the things they were saying, though, was we need to go back to the Bible. We need to go back to the Bible for our authority. Folks, that's, re- that's restoration right there. Now, they were trying to reform the church, but they were appealing to a restoration concept. And you go back and you look at some of the writings of, of Martin Luther. Look, read in some of the places in, in uh, his commentary on the book of Romans on the subject of baptism. You'll be amazed at some of the things that he says about baptism. It sounds like he's a restorationist in some of the things that he's saying. But not only Martin Luther. You've got Savonarola. Roller. Savonarola is in Florence, Italy. Just in the, I mean, you know, that's that's Rome's backyard, just a few miles away, and uh, he's calling for restoration, and he's calling for uh, people to change the way of their lives and to do Bible things in Bible ways, and um, man, those people, they they got a hold of it. I mean, they say if you want to really find out what the what the the uh, the period of the Renaissance was all about go to Florence, you know, all the paintings, all the. You know what he did? He got those people so focused on doing God's things in God's ways that many of, you know, they had probably the most statues uh, and the most paintings of all the Renaissance period today. But what he did is he got them to go and take paintings off the walls and statues that were, showed nudity, and uh, some of the books that had been written uh, that were focusing on humanism during his day. And he said, let's destroy these things because they're taking us away from God. So <laughs> they had the first old-fashioned book burning back then. They, uh, uh, they destroyed those, those great works that we hear today, great works of art. Uh, because he was um, he was trying to get people to go back to the Bible, and it um, wasn't going over well to folks down in Rome. And it wasn't long before he was caught, before he was tried, and before he was burned at the stake. So <clears throat> Savonarola, very interesting character. William Tyndale, English reformer, that uh, tried to give an English translation to the uh, the people of of England, but for fear of his life had to flee to another country and, and uh, to, to uh, finish his translation there. Last words, God opened the eyes of the king of England. And it was just a generation away before finally the king of England was able to, or English rule did allow for uh, the English Bible to be presented to the English people. And today he's heralded as one of the great uh, historical figures of English history. Ulrich uh, Zwingli did the same thing over in uh, Switzerland. John Calvin, you know, for all the things that we might say about John Calvin and the trouble that he's caused in some of his doctrine uh, over the years, he did a lot to help people to have the idea of going back to the Bible. Even though he interpreted it, I think, in a, in a very, very poor way, um, he did a lot to, to try to get people to uh, turn back to the Bible. Uh, 1626, a man by the name of Peter Maylin he proposed this concept for the way in which we might be able to unite ourselves in spiritual matters. How can we really get down to where we can break away from the things that that uh, keep us from being able to be united, and really in, in and accept the things that uh, that can be different about us? And so he came up with the idea in essentials unity. And non-essentials of liberty and all things charity. Well, I think that's a pretty good attitude. And I think later on, there are going to be some who are going to pick up on the idea. And they're going to run with it. And they're going to say, let's just see how this works out. And then they take a copy of the Word of God. And they see what God binds. And they hold to what God binds. And then where there are matters of opinion, they just say, hey, look, we'll just, we'll love you. And love one another as a result. So, another important figure. Other reforms, the Anabaptists in the 1550s, the idea of Anabaptists was one baptism on another. Many of those uh, groups were, of course, sprinkled when they were born by that time. Everyone was sprinkled. But they said, uh, you know, adults need to be baptized. They need to understand what they're doing. And so they baptized. There were a lot of things about the Anabaptists that were very, 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 very close to uh, some of the things that we would uh, that we would hold, uphold to, and the reason is is because they went back to the Bible and did uh, what the Bible said. And uh, John Knox, the uh, father of the Scottish Church uh, and uh, Presbyterian, a lot could be said. I tell you what, Scotland Reformed is what I, I teach restoration history for different schools, and and we spend I spend a lot of time in Scottish Reformation. Uh, when you think about the John Glasses, the Robert Sandemans, the the Haldane brothers, uh, Greville Ewing, and uh, you know, around 1790, um, Scotland was going through kind of a uh, an Enlightenment religiously, kind of like what happens in America in about 1801. Kind of comes over here, but during that those late years, you've got the Hald- uh, you know the Haldanes, and you've got the uh, Ewings who are really taking the the, uh, the religious people or the people of that country by a religious storm to try to encourage them to, to hear the message of the gospel. Of course, they didn't get it all right, but uh, they were great reformers and they were making the attempt. They were trying to get us back there and there were a lot of people that tried to get us back there. Thomas Cartwright led a Puritan movement, 1572 in England, but was really it was really a Presbyterian movement. Uh, but in England, 1607, John Smythe, founder of the Baptist Church. Uh, note, the first Baptist church in England was in 1611. Remember what else took place in 1611? King James uh, was produced then. So, very religious time in their history, and so people are more and more having an opportunity to get copies of the Word of God. Incidentally... I, uh, I, You know, they just celebrated the 400th year of the King James Version, and uh, Walmart had them for sale for like $6. Did did any of you see one of those? Oh, my goodness, I couldn't even read through the first verse. They had some some words in there. (laughs) I couldn't even make out. The letters looked all different and everything. So I know the King James has gone through a lot of revisions through the years, but uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful blessing to humanity because it finally got people in the book and got them to thinking for themselves about what needed to be done. So 1669 up in northern England, what was going on down in London, there was there was so much oppression of people who were just trying to follow a simpler pattern or a simpler pattern of uh, New Testament Christianity, and so they kind of fled from the uh, from paper uh, or, not, or from the rule and went up into the to the Lake District of Northern England, and a little church start, started. Um, they call, call themselves a, a Church of Christ. In fact, this is the first page of their uh, when they came together in 1669. let me see if I can make out what uh, some of this wording is. The book. Um, is for the use of that Church of Christ in Broughton, Furnace Fell and Cartmel, whereof Mr. Cambrill, uh, Camelford is the teaching elder. The 18th day of ye sixth month, called August 1669, a Church of Christ, was formed in order and uh, sat down together in the fellowship and order of the Gospel of Jesus Christ at the house of William Rawlinson off Toddlebank in Colton-in-Furness. And there's a lot more that it says about that. Now, they called themselves the Church of Christ. Well, you know, if you go back and you look at all the things they did, some of the things they did, I don't know if they would look very much like the Church of Christ today. But yet, what they were trying to do is, they were trying to capture the idea. They'd seen the name in Romans 16 and 16. The Churches of Christ salute you. And they said, that was good enough for them. That's, that's what we ought to call ourselves. And so that's what they called themselves. Now, today, they're a Baptist church and have been much of their history. But originally, their design was simply to go back to the Bible. And they did a lot of the things. Not all the things, right, but they did a lot of things. And so it was an effort. About 15 miles down the road is the church at Kirkby. That uh, was a restoration church. Came, some came from Toddlebank to start the uh, the Kirkby Church, and it was really the first rest, full restoration church in um, the restoration movement. And it went on for about 15 years before any of them had ever heard of an Alexander Campbell or Barton W. Stone. And so um, that old building is still standing. It walls in. It's a, it's a neat old place to see. I've got photos of it on on my website. So, why the concept of restoration? We've to spend a lot of time talking about Reformation. Why the concept of of restoration? Well, um, in his book, the disciples began. How the disciples began grew. M. M. Davis was a restoration preacher. He wrote what he thought was the main reasons why restoration was uh, was the only viable alternative. He just looked at the Reformation period and he, and he came up with the idea that. The Renaissance period was really all about human, humanity, um, humanism. You'll hear a lot about humanism even today and the focus more on the human experience. While there were some wonderful things about the human experience that needed to be celebrated and understood, men needed to understand where they were from, what they were doing here, where they needed to go. And so that prompted the idea of more learning. But they took it to the next degree. They started focusing on the human body and they, started, and they got further and further away from God. So finally, they even made themselves their own God. And so what he said was the Renaissance experience, while it was good in its initial concept, it really took people away from the idea of God, the divided church. People couldn't get along with each other. Many of the church divisions were reinforced by troops these people fought against each other. You get a leadership of uh, in a church somewhere. Chances are he had an army behind him. So if you really want to convert the world in the way that uh, some people did, then uh, you know you can just send them like the Spanish did to uh, to America. And uh, you know if you don't convert, we'll kill you. You know that's that's quite a different kind of evangelism, isn't it? Um, talking about willful participation. <laughs> you really want to jump on board with that and keep your life. So divided church was going on in, in in the setting. Warring church. Beclouded theology. It was hard for people to understand what was going on. It wasn't simple. It was chaotic. Many creeds were in place that caused people not to be able to to figure it all out. What is this? What is this? There were some preachers who had signed on, like in the Presbyterian church, to honor the Westminster Confession of Faith, but they found it so frustrating to try to understand and then to try to share with people. It was a much simpler thing to just pick up the Bible and start talking out of the Bible. And guess what? The people liked it better because it made sense to them. It was one of the reasons John Glass uh, ended up leaving the Presbyterian Church. So, um, beclouded theology. Arrogant clergy was in place. Uh, as well there was this sense of being better than other people and I just can't find anywhere where uh, ministers of the gospel of Christ are in the scriptures are to be you know counted as any different than any Christian in a congregation of the Lord's people we're all Christians and we've got several different works and things that we can do and of course human creeds again and of course infidelity, those kinds of things that were going on in the papal order that caused people to want to change different. So they come to America, uh, people escape kind of the oppression of the kings of Europe to be able to come to have the freedom uh, to do Bible things in Bible ways, and certainly they do. And so you see a growth and development in sparse various and various sections of the country where people have the opportunity to, to, I can just be Christians, you know. Uh, in the in the early days of our country, um, the religious Protestant movement planted itself in America. All of the major Protestant religions, the the Methodists, uh, the Presbyterians, and and uh, uh, the baptists and so on and they set up their religion on the eastern kind of on the eastern seaboard well you know about the parent pioneer spirit people want to move west well they couldn't take their pastors with them they couldn't take their priests with them they couldn't take their church buildings with them couldn't take their you know whatever they were experiencing they couldn't take it with them and so oftentimes they only had this boy and that was the biggest favor they could have given themselves they didn't realize this until they got out there in the far-flung regions like, uh, you know, Middle Tennessee, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, you know, we're talking about way far west. Uh, in their minds, you know, those people came and they settled in various different places. And they only had their Bibles and they started just following what the Bible said. Now, what was that that the uh, that the priest back home said? Well, I'm just looking and looking. I cannot find that anywhere in here. But I do see what God says for us to do. And the next thing you know, they're just conforming themselves to the way in which the Bible tells them to do. And so, you've got people, and we could spend a lot of time, and I've got... What time do we finish here? About, oh, my goodness. All right. So... <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, um, I could can, I can go all day uh, but Elias Smith and Admiral Jones in the northeast uh, James O'Kelly and around North Carolina you got uh, John Wright he was a German who uh, started a group called Dunkers generally and mainly because they they saw in the scriptures that people needed to be immersed and, uh, and it was several years before he'd ever heard of Alexander Campbell uh, you've got John Taylor down in Alabama did the same thing I'll I'll mention old Philadelphia here, just uh, over the mountains uh, in just a moment. Christian Herman Dasher down in Georgia. Chester Bullard, Dr. Chester Bullard up in Snowden, Virginia. None of these guys had ever heard of Alexander Campbell. They're just doing, they're just following the Bible. And um, in time, they start hearing about each other. Stone and Campbell movement, can't underestimate the power and the goodness that those two men did. We could spend a lot of time just talking about the good works That They did. But one of the best, uh, I guess, uh, things that they gave us was the written page. They had periodicals. Barton Stone had the Christian messenger. Alexander Campbell had the Christian Baptist initially, and then later he had the millennial harbinger. Uh, Periodicals have been good for us. Uh, Magazines have been good for us through the years where uh, scholars come and they try to divide the word of truth. For us, Of course, they've not always been perfect, and they're not certainly to be held up as high as the Scriptures. But yet, what they did is, they would send these periodicals out. And so imagine what it would be like, say, uh, Barton Stone in uh, 1826-27, he sends out his Christian messenger. Somebody is on a stage going, uh, or on a riverboat, say, heading down the Ohio River. And uh, he gets up from his seat, he's finished it, and he just leaves it there. On the uh, on the seat, the next guy comes along. He picks it up. He reads. He goes, "Wow, you know, we're doing this down here in Louisiana. We're we're doing some of these very things here." And so he writes a letter to Barton Stone and he says, uh, "Brother Stone, we're we're doing the same things you're doing. You have an interesting idea here about the Holy Spirit. Sure, would like to know more about that." So Stone writes a you know and. Over a period of time, people get to hearing about each other and you actually see a gelling of a movement, a grassroots movement of people who are just trying to do Bible things in Bible ways. That's how this grew uh, in this country. Uh, they were uniting with one another. Just like in New, Year, uh, New Year's Day, uh, 1832, when Barton Stone's disciples, uh, or Barton Stone's Christians and uh, uh, Alexander Campbell's uh, disciples came together in a, uni- a unity meeting. They came to realize we're doing the same thing in our own bodies. We ought to be together doing the things of the Word of God. So they did, uh, they did unite there at the Hill Street Church uh, there in Lexington. And so, uh, again, let's see. I've already shown that. Oh, yeah, old Philadelphia meeting house. 1805, just over the mountain, uh, just south of McMinnville, Viola, Tennessee. Um, the old building's still standing there, and uh, but it was a group of people just like I've been talking about before. They from all various religious backgrounds. They come together, and uh, they think, "Well, how can you know we don't have our denomination? How can we worship together?" And so they, you know, there were some Okellyites that happened to be there, and they said, "I tell you what, let's just do a Bible study together. And if we can find it in the Bible, let's do it. And if if it, there's something in the Bible that you're used to doing from your religious walk," If we can't find it in the Bible, let's just agree to leave it out just for the sake of unity. Oh, I like that idea. Okay, we'll do that. Well, over a period of time, old Philadelphia has been a great a great blessing. In fact, from that uh, that group, you see a planting of work here, or an effort to plant a work here in Chattanooga, 1848. Some of the men who had preached... Up at, uh, uh, at Old Philadelphia, J.J. J. Trott and John Ikebond, the state evangelist, held a meeting of four days duration in Chattanooga. They used the, the Presbyterian Church for, to conduct the services. There were no converts, and so there was no congregations that were planted here. Uh, later on, W.H. Uh, Hopson, I spent a lot of time talking about He was, I've read where he was the, he was the voice of the gospel. I mean, everybody wanted Winthrop Hartley Hobson to come and preach. I've got his biography on my website. You need to read it. Uh, you can download it for for free uh, and and read it. church was planted in Chattanooga on November 19, 1871. It was organized at the end of a two-week evangelistic meeting conducted by W.H. Hobson. Uh, it was called the Walnut Street Christian Church. Well, over a period of time, there were... Uh, there was a split that took place when they built a building. Built a building, cost $10,000. And when the members went into their new facility, they walked in and there was a great big organ that had been put in there. Well, there was a Dr. D.E. Nelson there that said, this should not ought to be. We can't find authority in the scriptures for this. And so, as you'll see, November 28, 1886, he and 16 others go and start the south in, down in South Chattanooga, Start what is later called the Cowart Street Church of Christ, and uh, so it's kind of the mother congregation uh, in this area. And so here's a picture of the old old building. Uh, I, are they still in existence today? I don't. I don't. I don't know anything uh, about their existence today. And of course, 1946 a group of 146 people attending several congregations there, but living over in this area, in the White Oak area. Uh, they had a tent meeting and invited W. Willie Lemons to come in and preach. And so as a result, they started a congregation, the White Oak Church of Christ. And uh, it's been going up to this day. And uh, so you see a great history. By 1972, there are 30 congregations in a 25 to 30 mile uh, area. So I know our time is way gone, but uh, let me just say this quickly. You're connected to... A wonderful, wonderful history. Learn about it. Learn about your spiritual ancestry in the gospel. Who baptized you? You ever thought about that? Who baptized you? Well, who baptized them? It may be that you can't find that out, but it could be that you could by asking some questions. Do that. Who baptized them? Who baptized the one who baptized them? Do some history there. Find your spiritual roots in the gospel and if you can't just go all the way back to the beginning and we can find some wonderful roots there god bless you thank you so much looking forward to some more time